Hey everybody, how's it going? This is your host, Michael Unterberg. You are listening to JU Israel. That's Jerusalem U Israel's podcast. The Teacher's Lounge, where you get to hear what we talk about when we talk about Israel so that you can feel connected to what's going on here wherever you are. Give you a little sense of what's going on behind and beneath the headlines. Does that make sense? I'm asking our co-host, Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going pretty hot, Mike. Pretty hot. You mean politically or weather-wise? I think politically things hopefully are cooling down a bit and weather-wise... Uh, it's very hot. Though you never know. I mean, also politically, it's all, all, I guess it depends what you're talking about politically, if you're talking about. So let's round it up. Let's round up. We, this is, we had a special jump-in episode this week where we talked about, episode 38, where we talked about what's going on in the Temple Mount. Let's just give, let's just spend the first few minutes wrapping that up, and then we want to look at the issue of Jerusalem and the role that it plays uh, which we think is somewhat misunderstood. So, Alan, can you just catch us up on we for those listening sometime in the future? We downloaded, we we uploaded an episode on Sunday discussing what was going on in the Temple Mount, episode thirty-eight. This will be episode thirty-nine. Alan, just sort of bring us up to date to what has happened this week. All right. So, first, I'd like to give a shout out to longtime listener and one-time guest Mark Rosenberg for catching. Uh, um, my confusion a little bit on Rav Gorn, who we spoke about in the last episode, his uh, his his yichus or his family. Um, he was not related to Rav Cook. He was he was the son-in-law of Rav Cook's one of Rav Cook's closest students, Rav David Cohen, also known as the Nazir, um, and whose whose son was the was the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shari Yishuv Cohen, who was Rav Gorn's brother-in-law. So thanks. See, see you're you're good. Thanks, Mark. You're good because you make so few mistakes that people can actually contact us and correct you. There's no point in even bothering with me because I'm just talking garbage the whole time. Nah, 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 nah. Okay, so um, what's where? Where are we at? So, of course, in the last last you could say episode, we were at really the heights of the of the rioting and um, political tension. Also, by the way, and, and there was peaceful, peaceful protest, yeah, peaceful. and we should and we should acknowledge that there was a, a more than usual of what we would call civil disobedient, normal democratic protests from the Palestinian side. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. That was focused almost almost all around the the Lion's Gate, which is the main entrance to the Temple Mount for Muslims, and that's what the 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 source of the of the tension is where Israel after the terrorist attack on the two Israeli policemen three Israeli policemen two who were who were murdered and then um, had put up uh, metal detectors metal grates like uh, fences that they had walked through and um, scaffolding with cameras on it so that became the source of the tension and around there there was a lot of peaceful praying actually the protest was buried around instead of the Muslims even when they were allowed to go on to Harabayt or Temple Mount they refused to and they still refused to even this morning we'll get to that in a minute um, they, they instead prayed outside the Temple Mount and that was generally peaceful um, the more am I being Pollyannish in your opinion if I think that that's at least a positive sign not, not a game change or a paradigm shift but at least a positive step within the Palestinian world 
I mean, I, I think so. I certainly think it's praiseworthy. I think that we believe in um, peaceful protest. Whether we agree with the, the issue at hand or not, we, we think that peaceful protest is the way to go. We think in democracies that is a fundamental of democracies, the right to protest, as long as it remains peaceful. So I think it is praiseworthy. Uh, um, anyway, so o- over the week, there's been a lot of tension. Some of the peaceful protests, some not so peaceful, some... Um, and uh, the government... And then there was the... The, terror, the, sorry, the attack in Jordan of an Israeli security guard who then shot the attacker and then another Jordanian all within the embassy complex in Israel and the nego- in Jordan, sorry, in Jordan and the negotiations to, uh, that, to get out to get the embassy staff who was involved out, out of Jordan because Jordan wasn't letting them go at first even though they have um, what's it called in English? Hasinut when uh, uh, Diplomatic. diplomatic immunity, diplomatic immunity, uh, back and forth, and that all sort of, even though everybody's saying no, that wasn't connected, but it all comes at the same time, where where basically um, the um, diplomats who were involved in the security guard who was involved were let were allowed to come back to Israel. Israel then on Tuesday night after some uh, diplomatic wrangling, yeah, diplomatic wrangling about forty eight hours or so, I think, and then Israel takes down the metal dete- detectors, but leaves up the cameras and the metal. And the metal fencing that they have to go through. So the so the walk the fencing looks to me like like amusement park lines or like a bank line that you have to kind of like go through like a curve like right isn't that what it's sort of like? Yeah, it's like these metal things that you have to. It, it controls the flow of traffic basically. It's like you have to wind through it to get yeah. to the gate. So it slows down so yeah. so you can see. Um, it's all it was all security. So essentially what happens is the 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 waqf that's the religious council on the on Temple Mount for the Muslims and the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and Gaza all declare that until everything goes back the way it was before the terrorist attack on July 14th, Friday, July 14th, they're not going onto the Temple Mount and they're going to continue the protests. And in fact, on Tuesday, I think it was, uh, Abu Mazen, the head of the Palestinian Authority, said they're stopping security. Um, they're stopping security coordination with Israel, which we talked about in the last podcast. That's a, that is a, a sign that things could get potentially worse. Um, whether that coordination stopped or not, it's still un- unclear to me, but he was at least announcing it. Um, and so... Things were seemingly seemingly getting worse until Israel finally decided Wednesday night to basically put the situation back to the way it was, July 14th, remove the cameras, remove the metals, and of course the metal detectors also in the fences. And that's we woke up this morning to that was a situation last night. The Palestinians um, had celeb, very much celebration, whereas and Hamas and the Palestinian Authority called it a a historic victory over Israel. Um, but yet they did not allow the um, Muslims to go up onto Temple Mount to pray the morning service Thursday morning, which is they pray much earlier than I believe the first service is somewhere around four o'clock in the morning at dawn. Um, remember, Muslims pray five times a day, so it's kind of like dawn, sunrise, um, early uh, early afternoon, late afternoon, and uh, at nighttime. If you want to get a sense of it, live within earshot of a mosque. That's the best way to learn the prayer schedule. Exactly, which keeps us honest too. Because it gives us. Uh, uh, I've never snoozed a minaret, but I've often wanted to. You know what I mean? 
So we um, – I guess the muazin would be the right. Muazin, right. So in the, the early morning service today, they, they, today's service they did not allow up yet. And they're meeting today. The walk, the head of the walk is meeting with the Palestinian Authority, I think Abu Mazen, to decide – what they're going to do because they had called a day of rage again Friday. Friday is again, of course, the Sabbath for the Muslims, and that they were um, they had called a day of rage, meaning a day of protest, not just around Jerusalem, which is really where it's mostly been, but also throughout the West Bank. Um, and so now they're going to decide if they're going to continue with that or they're going to declare total victory and let everybody everybody chill out a little bit. But remember, in all of this, I do just want to reemphasize something that has got mostly lost. In the discussion, at least, and, may, and may, not in the Jewish side as much as I think in the worldly side, it was the terrible um, uh, terrorist attack of the Solomon family in Chalamish, Neve Tzuf, on Friday night. The three um, three members of the family were killed by an Arab uh, Palestinian terrorist. Uh, so that's uh, well, that's when, when you know when you go back to status quo, and you think, well, all right, but that was a bump. Nothing. Well, it did happen. There are families and friends who their lives will never be the same again. And you could say, well, if it wasn't this, it would have been something else. Maybe, but it's this. And I always think when foreign diplomats pressure for, like when, uh, when, uh, when in the Obama administration, when Kerry pushed, within nine months we'll have a deal. Or when the current administration says, we're going to get a deal. And you raise expectations. Um, that there'll be peace within nine months or peace within a year, and this is going to be easy. And then that process comes to a crash. You very often end up with ratcheted up tensions, which could spill out in the cost of human lives. And that's sort of what I was talking about in the last episode. Like those, those three lives are of infinite value. So making decisions about, if I was the government, having to decide, in other words, Palestinian leadership just got a public relations win within their, within their world off off the backs of the Israelis. Netanyahu just suffered a major set of political blows, including from the newspaper, which was basically the organ of his administration, which chastised him. Israel, Israel Today. Yeah. By, by the way, I was actually thinking about this a lot. I was thinking about what can everybody agree on in this situation? I think everybody, at least in the street, and if you take away the spinners and Netanyahu government and some others, Almost everybody agrees there was a poll, 70% of Israelis, I say, that Israel capitulated. <laughs> well, you can try to spin it any other way, but that's the plain... Israel, Israel decided to address it with certain steps. There were protests. Israel stopped, is now going back to before. No, but, and and Israelis, Israelis, the man on the street in Israel, 70% see it as a capitulation and, are, and were against it. So everybody can sort of pretty much agree that Israel capitulated yeah, I, I, here. I don't understand 30% that say Israel didn't capitulate. I mean, if, you have, if they have a better word, I'd like to know what the 30%... What no, word? 30% weren't un, were, not, were not necessarily unhappy with it. Oh. The, the 70% were unhappy. Objectively, with it. they capitulated. Yeah. yeah. And then some say, well, but that was a smart thing. I, I, I always remain agnostic on these because I, 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 would, I would hate to be a policymaker who, if in response to my decision, there's, God forbid, another event like the Solomon family. I, 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 wouldn't, I don't know how I would live with that in my conscience. And that's... I mean, that's not why I'm not a politician. I'm not a politician because I wouldn't be able to. But, but I don't know how I could make decisions like that. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we always have to have a bit of humility when we're criticizing our uh, elected officials 
um, whether we elected them particularly or not, but they're they're the people elected them, and and, and I, I think that's true in any country. In other words, and I can dis- I, I can disagree and say I think it was it was the wrong decision to capitulate, but I have to do it with the humility of, but I can go to sleep at night after I say that because it has no effect in the real world, and so I kind of do feel that they, they should have shot for something to keep up there just to not. Give, uh, it, it's bad messaging, but am I willing to take the risk of sacrificing Jewish lives for good political messaging? Or do I say, well, but in the long run, this could cost more Jewish lives. And so uh, my head just goes around and around, and I go, thank God I'm, I'm not a... Right, so that, that, you know, that, is, that is the thing that no one can really know, because we don't really, we, you can't predict. I mean, what we, I guess what we can predict is there will be more... Um, tension that will be uh, maybe not immediately but this is not over in the long run how far down the road how things change what is your what is your ultimate you know roadmap and that that is sort of the criticism you hear a lot of Netanyahu it's not it's not the short term it's not only these short-term problems, but because there's no real long-term strategy that anybody sees that's, that's a real strategy he's a tactician not a strategician is that a word? yeah it sounds good enough for me. I don't know, but um, he isn't adept at strategery, is what George W. Bush would. <laughs> but he he would argue um, that he does, and his strategy is really uh, a, a, ge- a geographic, a bigger geographic strategy. His whole warming up with the Saudis and Egypt and Jordan, and making a what you would call a moderate Sunni uh, and Israel line in the Middle East, which he would. Those, those argue has been, has been working, and through that to solve the whole issue with the Palestinians, and of course, warming up to nations outside of the Western Bloc. Yeah, but that to me sounds like that, that's that's a, that's a partial strategy for diplomacy outside of the Arab world. You can't. That would be to me within and without. So I understand, but if you don't have if you don't have a strategy for Israel and Palestinians, but you have a strategy for other countries, okay, you have a strategy for other countries, but that's a big piece of the puzzle. No, a strategy for Palestinians is working through a bigger. He's he his his as far as I understand it is you cannot solve the Palestinian problem with Israel that Israel has on its own, right? It has to be part of a larger context of a strategy for the the Middle East in general, which which means the moderate Sunni. States change Israel's relationship with the globe and change the relationship with moderate Sunni Arab states, and that will spill over into changing the situation with the Palestinians. Right. Now, again, I don't, we don't have to go too far. Into, we're not really total foreign expert, you know, foreign policy experts and stuff. But that—that's generally the the sides of the of the argument where those. Dude, those we're not experts at anything. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I am. I'm pretty good at cleaning toilets, which I do. It's my responsibility. Okay, I apologize, except for that thing. <laughs> but um, the. The the um, that's the parameters of the argument I think on both sides of, of the Netanyahu thing. He has no strategies in the thing, and the other side says no. It's but it's not it's not your typical one of two states. Even though he gives you know talking points to the two state thing um, in the in the way that is often meant. Yeah. It's still a dangerous strategy. It would be like a doctor saying, "I want to get your weight down, so I'm going to put you on a six hour a day exercise regimen." But I also, doctor, I also have heart, palpita- heart palpitations and six hours of exercise a day could kill me. Well, we'll deal with that problem afterwards. In other words, that, that, so it's, it's a, there are reasons to think that way and reasons not to think that way. And you would, you would prefer, and maybe it's not possible, a whole body strategy that balances all factors and prioritizes in 
in important by importance and urgency, which aren't necessarily the same thing. And that's the that's the criticism that uh, that he they often gets and that people feel because especially when it comes up to these kinds of issues, um, you know, he doesn't think he just, they just put up metal detectors without really. Uh, weighing the the ramifications, all, all kinds of criticisms you hear. But again, we have to have humility that we're not in a position to have to respond on the spot to a terrorist attack on the on the Temple Mount or in, in a settlement or what have you. So I agree. I think I think that when we and that doesn't mean we have to agree. Like being in a democracy means I can disagree and express my disagreement, and I can vote according to my opinion. But everything I say should be within the context of humility and respect. For people who are doing this day in, day out, and taking a lot in their hands. Quite honestly, have dedicated their lives to, to the Jewish people. Whether it's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Benny Begin, uh, Shimon Perez, uh, Amir Peretz, all, wherever you are on the spectrum, you know, or, um, uh, you know, Yossi Sarid, even though I'm talking old merits, I don't know why, but my names are uh, saving me. Anybody who's right in the government, they, they have a vision and they've dedicated their lives to taking responsibility in, in a way that most of us don't have the gumption to do. I think that's a very patriotic way that people of any nation should talk about their politicians, disagree respectfully with honor, um, and the politicians should act in ways that show honor and dignity to their positions and to their people. Now, I've been thinking if we can shift the conversation, if we get this point, I was, I've been thinking, because it, if you're a God, a God believing as, as we are, maybe, you know, maybe you'll say that it's during this three weeks that we'll talk about in a second what it is, it's, it's very symbolic. Or it, Whether you're God-believing or not, culturally, this is a time where we mourn the destruction of Jerusalem, and in particular, the burning of the temple on the Temple Mount. So these events during this time of the year, the three weeks, which began two weeks ago, commemorating the breaking into the Temple Mount complex by the Romans, and coming up next week would be the ninth of Av, which is the actual destruction of the temple itself. And uh, I think um, I think it's worthwhile for us as we to sort of talk about what we do in class, which is what is the particular symbolism of, Ju- of Jerusalem for the Jewish people, um, and how is that distinct? Um, and then maybe if we have time to touch a little bit on for the Palestinians also, there's uh, their symbolism and what, maybe a little bit of a class review for those of you who have uh, have been in our class and those of you who are just listeners. Um, so we'll try and make it. It is a mix. I think. I think. I w- I, I, we don't get enough feedback from people. I would like to think that a good chunk of our listeners are alumni of our course. I would like to. You know, it's hard to know. Especially those guys in Japan. We, st- we got a hundred or almost a thousand just in Japan. I don't know what that is. It's got to be a fake, like a like a IP bluff. And if you are in Japan and listening, please go to our website juisrael.jerusalemu.org and contact us and tell us why you're listening. Otherwise, we assume. You are faking your IP as Japan for some reason. But, well, I, I, I'll start off with this, and I think, I think we have to separate. There's a religious aspect and a national aspect. And I get very frustrated because I think people lead with the religious aspect. And you'll hear this from Jews and non-Jews, like, like, uh, like when you see a documentary, Jerusalem, holy to the three great religions of the world. Well, okay, and it is Christians. You know, Jesus. By the way, tour guides, Israeli tour guides, 
That's like the theme. That's the theme. The whole, you know, the, the, the Jerusalem holy to three religions. As was Israeli tour guides, yeah. how, how they guide Israel very often. Well, it's sort of the starting point for most people when they think about Jerusalem. It has universal application in all different religions, whether it's England calling, you know, it's the new Jerusalem. It, it, as a metaphor, it's extremely powerful. And it does have holy sites. It is where, uh, according to the Christian Bible, where Jesus was killed and buried before the Christian Bible says he rose up again. So that's pretty important shrines for Christians. Uh, for Islam, and we can still disagree on which Wikipedia article to believe, um, but it's it's a holy site where Muhammad ascended to heaven. And so it has both the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the south of what they call the Haram al-Sharif, and in the middle, basically, we, according to consensus, where the temple stood, is the Dome of the Rock. Um, so it's a holy site, with, not the holiest, but a holy site in Islam. But in Judaism, and, it, and that's fine, and I'm not going to weigh holiness. Holy sites are holy sites. And yeah, we don't have to argue over it's holy for this or holy for that. It's, uh, holy, it's, uh, holy space is a holy space, and that's a great thing. And religious pilgrims should visit and feel moved and uplifted by visiting their holy sites. But in the Jewish religion, Jerusalem is central. There you go. It's a Jewish religion and the Ju- yeah. to the Jewish people. Judy- well, hold on. No, no, no. Within, before we get to the Jewish peoplehood and nationhood, I just want to point out that religious centrality to the function of the religion. In other words, huge sections of Jewish law deal with how to operate that temple. Arguably, a third of Jewish law deals with the temple and its operation and, and then contingent laws, laws of purity, things like that. So it's an enormous central thing that Judaism, and we believe as, as Jewish traditional Jewish law does not function in total. Now, you can disagree as a religious person if you want them to resume one day or not, but they're on the books. So Judaism was shorn of a great deal of its practice and ritual. No other religion has been damaged that way through not having control of Jerusalem. So that the religious use of Jerusalem is, is central to Judaism's function if you look at it as a whole. Or it was tradition. It was historically. I think you need to. No other religion has it ever been functionally relevant. So I'll let you go on this line. I'm not loving it, but I'll. But I'll. I understand what you're doing because I think you want to clarify for people. But I think you should use that ancient Judaism. I'm saying, yeah, no, no. That's what I'm saying. In other words, historically, yeah, that that the, it broke off a piece of religion, and then you can decide if you think in the future you want that back or not. But no other religion was damaged or changed in any way. You're saying damage is prejudicial. Okay, I'll buy that. So no other religion was changed through its relationship with Jerusalem or keeps Jerusalem at the center of its liturgy. Um, there, is no other, there is no other religion that uses, if I forget the O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to work, other than the Jews. So and I, and this is what I, maybe I'll... And I think this point is not important. No, no, no. I'm going to finish because I think that doesn't matter. I think none of that matters. Because religions should be able to visit holy sites and have use of holy sites however they want. We and the Muslims have a particular problem in that they have actual buildings that, in theory, many Jews also want to have a building there, and you can't have two buildings in one spot. That's a separate headache. The point that I want to make is this, that historically, Jerusalem was the capital of the Jewish state, 
of the Jewish nation. No other nation in the history of planet Earth has ever made Jerusalem the capital city of its nation state, other than the Jews, which we did in the first commonwealth and the second commonwealth. And so when the third state, the third commonwealth, was established, obviously it's going to be our national capital. That's the only capital we've had since King David in 1000 BCE. And this eludes people because they always talk about the Middle East and its conflict in religious terms when it's more of an ethno-national problem. And the Jewish state being in Jerusalem is not a, has, has really not, Ben-Gurion did not want the Jewish capital to be in Jerusalem. Herzl did not want the Jewish capital to be in Jerusalem because they were so religious. They were not religious. Herzl was utterly detached from religion, and Ben-Gurion had left religion behind. It was their national historical understanding of the nation state. So in other words, I would put it this way. In the famous uh, rabbinic story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai going to Vespasian and saying, look, you Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem. We get it. At least let us set up a rabbinic council in the city of Yavna. What he essentially said to the, the Romans was, I get it. Washington, D.C., okay, Mexico, you've overrun us, and you're going to destroy Washington, D.C. I get it. You're going to burn the Capitol building. You're going to burn the White House. You're going to burn the Smithsonian, all the symbolic institutions that represent. You're going to destroy the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and the Washington Memorial. Can we please set up uh, a a congressional set of committees, an ad hoc Congress in Philadelphia, so that I give you Philadelphia, so that, so that we can continue to operate some sense of Americanism, even though you've destroyed our capital. That's what we mourn at this time of year. Not only, and for many people, there is, there is a mourning that we don't have a temple that functions. But I don't think that's the majority of Jews. But I think that the, that loss of full national sovereignty with Jerusalem as the full capital of the Jewish people and the, that, that's, that's the, the, the tradition that, that this three weeks is honoring. It's a national calamity of losing sovereignty, not just the loss of a certain set of cultic rituals. And I would say, but that's why I start from a different point. I, I agree with you, but I start from a different point, which right. is that in antiquity, there was no separation between the, the cultural Judaism and the political Judaism. Right? They were completely integrated. Um, where and a good example of that is that the Sanhedrin sat in the temple, right? They well, what I'm saying is that the difference today is that religion isn't at the center of Western culture in the same way, and so we. St- but how, however, nation states still put their culturally relevant symbolic establishments in their capitals. The Eiffel Tower and the Louvre are not in Paris because it's easily accessible, and the Tower of London and Big Ben and... and I'm agreeing with you, but I think that the, the, the distinction that, we, that, that confuses people is that they only relate to the temple that it was a ritualistic thing back in the day, right? But you have to understand the temple was the seat of the government as much. It was adjacent to the king's palace, right? The king is... The Sanhedrin was there. The, the, they had government... Bodies and and you know bureaucratic offices in there ran things. The Kohanim were a political uh, part of the government that ran the government. Right? Different things you can see at different times. But the point is, is that the temple wasn't just a place for sacrifices and and God. It was it was the center of the 
of 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 the nation. Uh, what, I, what I'm but what I'm saying is that the that the that that ritual center, which Herod built up and made look fantastic, is is sort of like building a Lincoln Memorial or an Eiffel Tower. In other words, it's not building cultural centers in your capital. When you when a nation makes its pilgrimage, it's not just visiting the seat of government and power. It's visiting. It's a shared cultural. So in those days, culture meant religion. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm doing again. I think that that, that needs to be flushed out to understand. That's how they really. And then when the Zionists came back here. They said, and it's not that, 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 that Ben-Gurion left religion behind. He said, we need a new Jewish culture. But that old Jewish culture that we relate to in the religious framework is not for me because that's not a modern thing. So Jews coming back to the land need to create their own new, new Jewish culture. Um, and that's why those institutions were put in the same place as the old place and, and build this new. So we're totally agreeing. But and I, I just add one more point that I completely forgot. So go. You're good. Well, I, I, you know, that's why I think that today you do have the Israel Museum and you have, uh, you have uh, the Supreme Court, which is not just a, a building anymore. It's a beautiful cultural structure with a with a rose garden around it and it, it it's a place and it attaches to cinema city <laughs> yeah but that's a, that 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 is true because that reflects a modern you know modern culture like it or not that does reflect that well there's a lot of jewish culture i would say that the, the center of real jewish culture is more in the tel aviv area in terms of art and music and there's there are concerts that i like oh shoot it's all the way out in petach tikva and they're you know and and they no and they don't perform in jerusalem jerusalem in Israeli culture, I don't think gets all of its due. Although most people will, so I think that's when we're making the distinction here, which is which I think is right and very good between national symbol, symbols as culture and grassroots hardcore culture, right? And again, as uh, Tel Aviv got the distinction of being the first Hebrew city, right? And that Am, the cultural, you know, the father of cultural Zionism, lived in. In Tel Aviv, and look, American culture doesn't generate out of D.C. Right, for sure, uh, it, it doesn't, and it never will. And then, of course, you have a whole swath of Israel, and even though that's a word, but of Israeli culture coming out places like Sterot has has produced a number of bands, you know, music industry that is very uh, that has been very influential in Israeli pop culture. Right, but so, there is the Kennedy Center so, for the Performing Arts because you want in the capital a cultural center, and so there are Jerusalem theaters and there's Jerusalem. Muslim arts to make sure that the capital is also there's all sorts of there are wine festivals and culture festivals and art festivals. A lot of people would say that Nir Barakat has is has been at the lead of changing that image of Jerusalem. You know the Tachanari Shona, which was the old train station, has been changed into a complex of not only, not only food and all the, and and other sort of an urban outdoor. Shopping, eating area. They have a tremendous amount of cultural events there. Like even I think Friday afternoons before Shabbat, they have like a whole Kabbalat Shabbat thing. With a certain amount of of uh, attention to, well, no, not 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 religious Jewish religious culture, but but Israeli culture. Yes, because they do, I think, do Kabbalat Shabbati things, but like with yeah, yeah. music and. Yeah, but I, but also they it's done in such a way that it preserves the, the it preserves the railroad identity and the historical you can be aware of the history of the location as well so it's it's preserving the history of Jerusalem what do you want to say we just got our news flash again we're, we're recording this on Thursday morning so the Mufti of Jerusalem the head of the the Waqf in Jerusalem has now uh, said it's permissible for Muslims to return to Harabai to um, to Temple Mount to pray which is an indication that things are now going to cool off hopefully we're in the simmer. 
yeah. simmering down so, mode. So, so maybe let's how uh, so how so hopefully we've established this idea that, that that Jerusalem is more than just for the Jewish people a nice religious center that once had this big temple that we can kind of think of as it was a uh, was a synagogue that it's much more than that to Jewish people and I will say that and that's uh, and and you see I, I was having and that, and that national capital use of Jerusalem was only really used by the Jews well I, I, you know the Jebusites had a city state that presumably was destroyed by David so but that wasn't really a nation state in the way that we mean. The only nation state that made Jerusalem its capital ever in history was the Jews. Even interestingly, even imperial, like the Ottoman Empire, did not have its administrative capital. The Crusaders wasn't a nation state. They had they had a bunch of outposts around, and I think their chief offices were here in Jerusalem because they were here to protect the temple. But it wasn't a nation state of citizens. You didn't have huge Christian societies and families and businesses. I would, and I, so I would like to go back a little bit. This idea of the the Jewishness. And how it's integrated between sort of our religious ritual and our and our government, just to sort of end. When I was talking about this with my wife, wife this morning, if you see in the, the silent uh, Amida prayer, right? And we talk about Yerushalayim, we talk about Jerusalem, going back to Jerusalem, but immediately is brought up also reinstating the Davidic line, right? Because it's connected, and it's not only the fact that God dwells in Jerusalem, it's also the political power of the Jewish people dwell in Jerusalem. Well, I would even argue that if you're putting rabbinic literature aside, if you're looking at the Bible, the... No, but the rabbinic literature was more key, I think, because no. the literature was there, was fixing it for us in the diaspora to remember that. That was the whole point. Well, you didn't hear my... Well, let me, let me make my point. No, <laughs> should I let you make your point before I tell you what? That's true. You are the boss. That's true. Um... No, I think I think that the Bible is telling a story, like in the in the in the five books of Moses, in the Pentateuch or in the Chumash, whatever you want to call it, in the Torah, God never mentions Jerusalem. He says that these rituals, the book of Deuteronomy says over and over again, I want these rituals to take place in the place that I will choose. And the Bible says that when David establishes a kingdom, he he, he rules in Hebron for seven years as the king of Jew, Judah, Judea. Book of Samuel, chapter. Two Samuel, it's the whole ball game. Uh, I don't remember, but he. My, oh, my wife's also like a super. She knows the chapter exactly. So, uh, but but David decides he wants to conquer Jerusalem from the Jebusites. He's picking a place that's north of Judah, but so that it's in the ten, It's in the the territory of the Israelite northern kingdoms, but not that far. You can always, you know, you're close to your power base for whatever reason. It's it's on a hill. It has it's easily defensible if you wall it. It has easy access to the water spring underneath, even though it's on a hill and can be walled. It's a great place to make a capital, and that's where he makes his capital. And he turns it into a Jewish city in a thousand BCE. And so the story the Bible's telling, if you don't go into rabbinic retro, you know, putting it back, well, that's uh, there are allusions to it. There are, if you look at the Bible from a political perspective. For the moment, you know, a political reading of the Bible, uh, you know, it doesn't specify it. Mount Moriah is, is specified in the Abraham story. But the story of Jerusalem becoming the center of the Jewish people is the story of David making it the national capital. Only after he makes it a national capital does he bring the tabernacle there. And only later does his son build a temple. So that the, so that the story the Bible is telling from a political perspective is because David chooses to make his capital, that becomes the place where God decides should be the ritual center. And there's also a lot of things about Saul, the previous king, that has to that has to be done with it, which is uh, 
which you know one has to uh, see in perspective also that Saul was not able to, to to conquer the land from the Jebusites, and now he does. That Saul was from Benjamin, and he moves it into sort of Benjamin's border with Yehuda, all those things. Yeah, that's political. He wants he want he he's not he doesn't want to diss the Benjaminites, so he's going to build his capital in the Benjamin territory, but still, which is also still near. Whatever, there's a whole other... I'm saying, but the, the, you could, there's a lot of political angles that are really happening to make Jerusalem the capital 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. Well, it's funny because we idealize in our memory, you know, the kingship of David was so beautiful and, and idyllic. And then you open up the book of Samuel, and it was not. It was, it was bare-knuckle politics, more bare-knuckle than today because people get killed. Go to judges, if you're talking about bare-knuckle politics. That's, that's not even a central... You know, you think no, that's... People, I, I think people remember that as the chaos before the coming of the age of King David. And King David does not rule a peaceful kingdom politically, or there's, there's efforts to overthrow him a couple of times. And, and what we're, I guess, really trying to push here is that because the Jews are a nation, that is why we have the right to a state. Every nation has the right to its own state. Every nation on earth has the right to self-rule in its own sovereign borders and its own state. That gets forgotten not only by non-Jews who say, well, why are a bunch of white people of some religion coming and kicking out indigenous brown people from their homeland? Well, we are the indigenous people. And we are of many different colors and ethnicities because we have survived a very long and brutal exile. We have always had people living here. And we are the only people to ever make Jerusalem its capital. And we are the first people in history to, after losing our sovereignty, wandering the world, and becoming this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multicolor human nation of, of, of wanderers, return back to the center and rebuild. And Jerusalem is always at the center. Zion is, is the hill. <laughs> uh, 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 Zionism is the return to that hill. Zion is... And, and it's, yeah, I mean, Zion means Jerusalem. Look, when, when Ben-Gurion and, and, his, and, his, and his board of leaders were voting on what the name should be the week before the Declaration of Independence, they considered the name Ziona or Zion for the name of the new state. And they rejected it because Jerusalem, under the partition plan, was not going to be in Jewish hands. So, well, we can't name it for Jerusalem. And then they thought, what about Judea? Well, according to the partition plan, most of Judea is going not to be in Jewish hands. And so they went with Israel, which is the name that it was given when when the state was opened by Joshua, not the one that was closed by the Romans. So, so... Am I, am, I, am I explaining the, the bottom line of why I think this is so crucial and why that paradigm shift of thinking in national terms is so essential? Am I, am I articulating it well? Or I, I think so, but I, I mean, we talk about this all the time, so yeah, that's not right. It's coming out there. I think that what, what's the next stage of the conversation, which we're going to have to have, not now, is really so, as you've pointed out, that historically the Jewish people were the only people who looked here. Um, as Jerusalem is central and capital, and the capitals we've argued are political capital as well as all this cultural capital, all those things. Um, now, how does the Palestinians play into that? Because now, since you know, last few decades, the Palestinians have been claiming Jerusalem as their capital, uh, their national capital. So we'll have to deal with that, but we don't, I think that that's a longer conversation than we have time to do now. Um, I would just sort of add with you know a, a prayer, a tefillah, that, of course, as we have Tisha B'Av in front of us, the ninth of Av, which, which commemorates the destruction of both temples, we also have after that 
um, you know, uh, hopefully, the, as, as Jews always, the hope and the belief that we are headed towards a time of more peace and more, um, and, and more understanding. Uh, and I would argue to, to bring the end of this conversation to the end of the last conversation that we had about politics is I think that uh, uh, when we work together more and respect each other more, not by all of us agreeing, but by respecting, appreciating, valuing the disagreements that we have and respecting each other and working through our arguments, there's nothing more democratic and there's nothing more Jewish than people of different opinions hashing it out and trying to come to some common ground. And that's what will lead to a better Jewish future, I think. That respect and deference. Because if we can wax rabbinic for a second, which we, you know, this one, I guess, during three weeks, thinking that, that essentially is what we know when we said senseless hatred in the, in the Second Temple period, which led to the 2,000 year diaspora, was that sense, it says in the Talmud, of, of that the, the students weren't, people weren't respecting each other, people didn't listen to each other. Well, to put my history hat back on and take off my rabbinic hat, uh, they literally weren't. Like, if you look at the history of the region, they. they no, but they started a civil. They started a revolt against the Romans, and then initiated a civil war during the revolt against. Well, of course, that was going to lose. You have to unify around a central strategy if you're going to take on the most powerful empire in the history of the earth. And they didn't. There was constant internal fighting. Wear both hats at the same time. I know it's, it's the same hat. It's the same hat in this situation. And that's a different argument that I want to have with you on a different episode about story versus history and how does history work within its own context. But that's a whole other conversation. As always. We have too much to say, and why would anyone want to listen? <laughs> but for those of you who are listening, we always appreciate it. We see our numbers are growing, um, and so we really appreciate when you recommend us. If you can, go on to uh, iTunes and give us some stars. That would be awesome because so far nobody's doing it. Let us know who you are. Yeah, go to, go to our website and give us some feedback um, because we want to know more about our listeners so that we can – tune the podcast to people's needs and also feel loved. That's also important for this time of year. Uh, So thank you very much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.